Welcome to a new episode of Good People Talk, the monthly podcast of the Good People Fund. This is where social visionaries supported by GPF talk about what fuels them as changemakers and the impact they are making in their communities and beyond. This episode, we speak with Rabbi Levi Lauer, founding executive director of Atzum in Israel, and Julie Fisher, founder and director of the Consortium for Israel and the Asylum Seekers. Both are working to improve conditions and futures for the estimated 30,000 asylum seekers now in Israel and to enhance public awareness of their journeys and challenges, all to affect positive change. For more information, visit the websites listed in the show notes. For now, we join Julie and Rabbi Lauer in conversation with GPF Executive Director Naomi Eisenberger. For very different reasons, different circumstances, you both became involved in the asylum-seeking community in Israel, which is a very conflicted subject. Before we even get into the, the depths of this, could you, Levy, define the term asylum-seeker? An asylum-seeker by working definition, I'm not sure about the, what the legal world makes of this, but by working definition, is someone not citizen or has no resident status in the country to which they've come and is seeking to become either a resident or a citizen of that country or to make passage to safe passage to some safe haven. In almost every case, it's a person who has fled a situation that has put them at risk at best economically and at worst literally for fear of their lives. People who are seeking asylum in the truest sense of the word, that is a place that will be safe and will protect them from the world that has not protected them thus far. In Israel, the overwhelming majority of those people are Africans, the overwhelming majority of them from Eritrea and Darfur or Sudan. There's some exceptions to that. I'd say about probably 10% exceptions to that. About 60% of them Christian, the others Muslims and a few others of either no religion or different religion. Many of them were trafficked across the Sinai Peninsula, having escaped to Egypt, many of them on foot. Many of them, particularly the women, brutally mistreated by the Bedouin traffickers who guided them across, or I mean, guide is too gentle a word, who brought them across the uh, Sinai Peninsula. This all was about 20 years ago, 15 years ago. They came to the Israeli border. They began to cross that border. I prefer the word irregularly, but I'm prepared to use the word illegally. At the time, there was no interdiction of that border. When the numbers began to become considerable, the government took note and tried to interdict that traffic in a number of ways in at least one case that I'm familiar with, troops were actually given orders to open fire and refuse the orders. In the end, about 65,000 Africans crossed that border. The manner in which they were then treated was taking the question further than, than you intended, perhaps. Um, some of them were imprisoned is a little harsh. They were put in whole detention centers where they were kept. Some of them were never put in those attention centers and given 300 shekels or some few hundred shekels and took the buses north, most of them to Tel Aviv. In the end, the government decided on the policy of 
I don't know the word to use here because settling is far too gentle and is not exactly language. Dumping is a more appropriate term and dumped the overwhelming majority of them in South Tel Aviv, which was already an extremely problematic neighborhood. And this exacerbated the situation many fold. Some few thousands left South Tel Aviv and found their way all over the country. All of them, all of them, um, having either run for their lives run for the hope of some modestly better economic future. Many of them came from regimes that had impressed them into unbearably difficult and murderous military service, particularly through in Eritrea. Many of the women came alone or with small children. The state, in my judgment, wisely decided to let them cross the border. I'll even go so far as to say that the state even wisely then decided to let no further ones across the border, at least irregularly. Um, 60,000 is an an appreciable number of people for a country this size, but basically adopted no policy as to their status. And to this moment, they have never been given any kind of final status. The asylum requests are in the, I don't know, many thousands, tens of thousands. The numbers of asylum statuses accorded, I think, is less than a dozen, although Julie may have the more precise number. And that's the way the situation exists today. They're kind of, in the term that uh, is famous in Israeli literature, kind of present absent. Everybody knows they're here, but they're absent because they have literally no legal status and the complications of this are enormous. And of course, it leads to their permanent insecurity. It's a humanly, economically, medically, morally, completely untenable and unbearable situation to the great shame of the Jewish state and its people. Saying that it's complicated is somewhat of an understatement. Lady, you founded Atsum to address specific issues in Israel, such as prostitution, the recognition of people who were formerly known as the righteous Gentiles who had saved Jews during the Holocaust and other issues. Julie, you came to Israel from the United States. You were a Jewish educator. And then when your husband, Dan Shapiro, became the U.S. ambassador to Israel, you picked up the family and went and found your place. What spoke to you about the situation with the asylum seekers? Thanks, Naomi. I grew up with family stories about refugees, so it was part of an important value in our family. And it wasn't just family lore. When I was a teenager, we welcomed a Vietnamese family to our community, and we were one of the sponsors. It was a profound experience seeing them going, go through resettlement and being a part of their new beginning. And I think this is, uh, you know, kind of from back in my personal history. So fast forward many years, I was a teacher and an educator. And when I first arrived in Israel wearing a very different hat as the spouse of, of a prominent diplomat, I wanted to find a way to be involved in education and to give back to the community. And I was taken on a tour of South Tel Aviv and I saw a crowded and dingy childcare center. Actually, that's too nice a word to use for it. Uh, I call them ba- babysitters or really warehouse warehouses for children, uh, unsafe and com- completely inappropriate. I knew I had to do something and I think it was very clear to me what, what I needed to do. And so my daughter and I started volunteering. Little by little, that led to my path of becoming more and more involved in issues having to do with the asylum-seeking community in Tel Aviv. You said that the situation is complicated. I want to add that my own involvement here is largely because I think it's extremely uncomplicated. 
It is mm-hmm. 65,000 people cross your borders. Um, they pose no security risk that any Israeli official has ever pointed to with any serious statistical evidence. They pose, the police themselves say they pose no threat to public well-being any greater than that of the normal, so to speak, resident of South Tel Aviv. They're willing to work and do work. They send their kids to the schools and those kids speak fluent Hebrew and have adapted to life here at least as well as the average Israeli kid has. They're loyal citizens of a country that has treated them infamously badly. So I think this is basically extremely uncomplicated. I'll also add, although this is not the moral argument, but it's just the economic argument, they're also willing to do work that no one else in the country is willing to do. If the country, in fact, deports them, there will be scores of institutions not cleaned, floors not washed, all kinds of things not attended to. They pay taxes that are taken out at source for the work they do. The country would do well just economically to give them permanent resident status, <laughs> let them work, put taxes on that as every citizen is taxed, provide them with some modicum of reasonable health care instead of forcing them to go to the emergency rooms. So it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make moral sense. It doesn't make political sense. It doesn't make economic sense. So I think it's actually extremely uncomplicated. Julie, tell us a little bit about the consortium and why it came about. So the consortium came about about three years ago. At the height of the threat of the deportation, there was a time when it looked like the policy of the government in Israel was going to change and asylum seekers and refugees were going to be uh, deported to third countries. And while that didn't end up happening, it did create a crisis in the community. During that time, it was clear that there were many people, both in Israel and around the world, that wanted to have an impact, that wanted to learn, that wanted to help, that, who wanted to donate, who wanted to volunteer. And there was not a, an easy way for them to have access to what was happening, especially because the ecosystem of the community supporting the asylum seekers here is made up of many different small NGOs doing all different things, having to do with healthcare, mental health care, safety for children, vocational training, all sorts of things. And there wasn't a lot of coordination and there was some duplication of effort. There was a need to coordinate between the small organizations and an opportunity to educate on the topic and to bring greater focus. So we got to work. We rolled up our sleeves, Rachel Gutman and I, inspired by none other than Rabbi Levy Lauer and <laughs> someone the Good People Fund knows uh, well also Larry Paul, who mm-hmm. we call the grandfather of the consortium, said, uh, you know, step up and start doing the work. And then the next thing we know, we got a call from Levy saying, and, uh, and I'm going to help you to do this. And it needs to get done. Yeah. And since then, we've been uh, working around the clock, trying to do what we can to, to have an impact. With this community. I want to add this at the risk of this sounding like a mutual admiration society. The coalition functions because Julie and with Rachel's considerable help have decided that there is no problem that should be subjected to any concern of ego. Nobody has any interest here other than to try to help people desperately in need have their needs met. Since that's a, a relatively straightforward agenda and because there are neither political nor personal politics in place here, I'll just say it. I mean, Julie is about the easiest person in the world to work with because the discussions are always to the point, always of substance, and 
addressing human needs. So what could be bad about that? I mean, what else would you want to do with your life? So for me, the privilege has been here to work with people that just understood that intuitively, cleared the decks and said, okay, let's figure out how we can get the most urgent assistance to the people most desperately needed. So since I think that's the life best lived, and I think that Jewish tradition mandates that in appreciable part. So it's not, I mean, I'll, I'll say it again at the risk of being annoying. It's just not very complicated. It's no. just kind of straightforward. But I think that we've also failed in appreciable to an appreciable degree. And I'll tell you what I mean. Of the 60 some thousand that were originally here, only half remain. The other half have either been forced out of the country or left the country usually to places of lesser safety, and many of them to places of grave risk. Many of those people were either forced out or bribed out for paltry sums. Many men have left what wives and children or women and children behind to try to seek better livings and economic sustenance, and have deserted those families. Some of them drowned in the Mediterranean. Public opinion is no more in favor of asylum seekers today than it was 20 years ago. And I see that as our failure. I mean, maybe ours, ours a little arrogant. I mean, who are we to try to change all of Israel of public opinion? But the political climate is certainly no better and perhaps worse today. And the hallmark of this is that the new Minister of Interior, Ayala Chakaj, says on her first day in office, as if she has nothing else to do with her time, that her among her first priorities is to provide for the she didn't use the word deportation, for the removal of the remaining asylum seekers. There's an overwhelming sentiment in the country that these people be forced out of the country. And there's an over, an even more overwhelming sentiment in the Knesset, both in the ruling coalition and in the opposition. And in that way, we've failed. And I think that we have done a poor job of marshalling the resources of public opinion and the big public relations agencies to mass to do a campaign here that put a face on these people so that the average Israeli would have to see, we're not talking about asylum seekers, we're talking about that kid, that mother, that person. And I don't think we've done a good job of that. But I want to hear the other half of it from Julie. I think this is my uh, glass half full time, right, Levy? We we tend to have this banter back and forth uh, between us all the time. Well, I agree, there's so much more that we need to do. It's imperative for us to do, to move this issue forward so that the 30,000 asylum seekers who remain here can live in dignity with their basic needs being met, period. A lot more to do. However, uh, one, of the, one of the lessons that we saw during the height of the deportation, which was a time of great stress for the community and, and great fear, and as Levy said, did lead to some people leaving in not great circumstances. Uh, at the same time, we also saw some in the Israeli public stand up and say, you know, I, I don't know how I feel about this issue politically, and I'm not quite sure about, you know, what our refugee policy should be. However, I am uncomfortable with the idea of putting people on planes and sending them to places where their lives may be at risk. And so we saw an engagement of parts of the population who were not engaged before. At the same time, a lot of the groups we work with have spent a lot of time trying to create opportunities for Israelis to meet asylum seekers face-to-face, -to, -face, to hear firsthand their stories. And that what we've really you know, discovered and what we know is that Israelis live in a very segmented society. There aren't a lot of natural opportunities to meet and to mix and to kind of see the stranger among us in daily life. And it's harder to, eat, to dispel myths that you may have heard if you haven't met 
someone else face to face. So in creating opportunities for Israelis to meet asylum seekers face to face, we often see that those interactions can be quite powerful and that uh, what results is really a lot of compassion and really seeing the humanity in the other and moving away from some of the harsh policies. I was just with an asylum seeker who was uh, speaking to a group and she was talking about how the policies are very troubling to her and hurtful to her. But then she went on to describe the Israelis who have helped her and her family in great detail. And it was so beautiful and so filled with compassion and generosity that you have this juxtaposition of difficult policies and uh, a lot of beautiful humanity. And so somewhere in there, Levy, we're going to find that uh, glass half full, glass half empty. I, I want to know, I want to talk on this, and I think it's important for the discussion. And the question is how to marshal this in a way that creates a movement of such considerable weight that the Knesset decides to back away from the question and the possibility of deportation. I accept what you say. There are probably even a few million Israelis. Let's give our people the benefit of the doubt. There are probably even a few million Israelis who think that those people should be left to live lives of dignity. But it's not organized, and we need to find some tools to bring this together in some coherent, cohesive way that lets the government know that they would pay a price for this. The stories that most of these people tell would move people. Well, my hope is that somebody listening to this works at or owns one of the world's best public relation advertising yeah. firms and calls says, I'm giving you our pro bono time and we'll do the campaign and we'll make a public issue. Frankly, we were able to turn the corner slightly on the issue of trafficking and prostitution because YNR picked this up and made it a huge pro bono effort for which they won and deserved the worldwide right. prize. I hope somebody would do so. We need somebody to do that. I've failed in the last few years to they're no longer able to do that. And I've failed to find somebody else to step in, but I hope somebody hearing this picks up the phone. They can call me 24 seven, I'm not sleeping that much anyhow. And I would be happy to find somebody that says, you know, give us some direction here and let this pick us up pro bono for you and make this a, a campaign that will help to shape Israeli opinion. And by the way, and the world's opinion about Israel. So, you know, we really hope for pragmatic, compassionate, forward thinking approaches that will allow asylum seekers to live in dignity and have their basic needs met. And we have organizations that are doing incredible advocacy out loud. And then we have organizations that are doing incredible advocacy legally in legal channels that are actually moving some really specific things forward over the years. And then we have all sorts of you know quiet messaging that happens. I want to put out there also that there are, since we're talking about kind of public opinion and telling the stories of asylum seekers to the general public to try to kind of capture the hearts and minds of people that, you know, Hotline for Refugees and Migrants is doing a wonderful project right now where they highlight a, a person's story. And there is a great, there would be a great opportunity to uh, spread that to a wider audience if we were to bring in more resources and expertise to do that. But there are some really wonderful kind of grassroots campaigns going on that are really focusing on that. Uh, and it could just be a way to to spread that a little bit wider. But but it is, I think, the way to to capture the issue in, in even ways that are non-political. At the consortium, we look for ways to bring this issue in some ways to the lowest common denominator so that we can get people across the political spectrum to join with us to provide food, to join with us to prevent homelessness 
So in, in ways that, while it's important, of course, to do the policy work that can sometimes get tricky, we also are trying to find ways to unify and to appeal to people's uh, basic humanity and belief that, you know, no one should go hungry in Israel, period. It doesn't matter if they are a citizen or not a citizen or how they got themselves here. And so we kind of rally around some of those ideas at the same time while fighting the really important advocacy fights and legal fights at the same time. Why is there a kind of considerable public resistance to allowing these people resident status? At one time, the concern was that because the border was wide open, we would be, quote, overrun. The potential racist intimation of overrun here bothers me, but that border is now hermetically sealed. There have been a total of 12 people in the last five years that have come over that border irregularly. So now what is the issue? That is, what is it that leads people to say we should dump these people beyond the borders of our country? What, what are they afraid of here? What's the concern? There's no great criminal threat. There's no, not a single indication of some terrorist collusion. What's the issue here? And I'm not asking rhetorically. I, I, I literally don't get it. So this, I mean, this issue actually comes up a lot. In, in fact, it's one of the most difficult issues to unpack when I speak to audiences, which is something that, you know, before COVID-19, I was doing several times a week about issues related to asylum-seeking community. And the question would always come up, and often from the American Jewish community, visitors to Israel, why do we see refugees differently? Why is that? And it's a fascinating issue to unpack. It, it deserves more attention than we've given it. And it isn't a matter of, I think, simply people saying, you know, everyone who doesn't belong here, get out. I actually think there's a lot of myths and misunderstandings, and there's been a lot of uh, political rhetoric against the stranger. And I think a lot of that has caused a situation where there's a, a great deal of misunderstanding. And yes, full disclosure, I am an educator. So I do believe that education is the key to changing hearts and minds and that, and I've seen it happen that when groups come in and they say, why do people come here to take our jobs? And then they hear the story uh, of, a, of a young man who fled Darfur dressed in girls clothing as a toddler by his mother because all of the men in the village were being shot, including boy toddlers and boy babies. Then when they hear the story of how this 12 year old arrived in Israel and was put in a youth village and saved all of a sudden, their eyes were open because what they thought walking into the lecture was people came for a better job. And that's just simply not the case. And so I think that it's, it's arduous work. It's very difficult work, but it does depend, I think, a lot on how, how we can explain what has actually happened and really raise up the humanity. When push comes to shove, although a lot of the statistical analysis of how people feel about asylum seekers and refugees sounds very troubling when you meet real people who feel that way and you're able to converse with them and tell them and, and invite them to learn more and to engage. I find it to be a really easy sell, statistics aside. There's nothing I love more than when someone thanks me for taking them to South Tel Aviv, for teaching them what's happening there, and for inviting them to engage in making their society stronger. It's not easy work. I remember a few years ago, lady, you and I were talking and you offhandedly mentioned the goal of raising a million dollars. Could you give us a, a good explanation of this million dollar idea? I mean, Julie brought to attention the most vulnerable of the most vulnerable, who are about 900 single mothers, asylum seekers, 
whose husbands or partners are no longer in the country have either abandoned them or are just not able to function in any supportive way. It seems to me that Absum's best work is to identify the most vulnerable people underattended by public and private need and then try to get resources for them. It seemed to me that a million dollars was a good round number to try to put some tidy sum in the hands of all of these mothers so that they could buy formula and food and diapers and pay rent. So far, we've been able to raise a little less, I have to look again today, but a little less than a third of that. And from the letters that I'm getting, which are embarrassing in their gratitude, um, it seems that it's done some good. The amount is relatively paltry considering how great the need is, but it would be good to be able to go to the world and say, here was a million dollars raised for arguably the 900 most vulnerable people in the entire state of Israel. And I include Arabs among that in that list. These mothers, the illnesses they face, the challenges they face, the joblessness that they COVID-related face, the hostility from the Israeli public that they face, um, the fact that there's, they come from, many of them from societies male dominated and don't have male protective figures in their lives. It just seemed to me that that would be um, a good goal to set, to give these women some basic encouragement that they could get to a better day. I'm glad to hear that you have had success. In all of the years that the Good People Fund has been involved in this specific area, I know it's the stories of the individuals. Many, many times they are the women. The I think the very first person that we became involved in helping was a woman who had gone through the Sinai and been repeatedly raped, tortured, arrived in Israel. I think her kids went to the, the school where so many of the asylum seeker kids go. From her to so many others, I remember Everything that we have touched upon today is incredibly important, and I hope that it has provided both of you with more impetus and wind beneath your sails, because I know, particularly for you, Levy, who have been tilting at windmills, as I've said many times for so long, it can get sort of... I don't like that description. One of the board members of Atsum, <laughs> one of the meetings, was said something better. I want to shift the idiom here. I, I raised the suggestion that some of the board found to be outrageously over the top. And she said, oh, it's from Levy, the patron saint of lost causes. So I would rather, although the Jews don't have saints, I, somehow that sounds better to be the tilting at windmills. Well, I, I have a fondness for Man of La Mancha. We've talked about monetary support. I want to end with asking you both, what can any concerned person do? So beyond monetary support, anything that folks can do to raise awareness, start by telling your own refugee story to your children, to your community, through a blog post, through something in your local newspaper. Um, meet asylum seekers and refugees firsthand in your community and hear their stories. If you don't know anyone, contact me or Levy and we will connect you. Talk to your rabbis and community leaders, priests, about how your community can get involved. Maybe you'd like to sponsor a refugee to come to your community, an incredible way to demonstrate the power of community and teach your family members and your community how to make a difference. It's not something that everyone can do, but there are communities that are doing it. And I know that the U.S. is going to start doing more resettlement in the coming year. So they need partners for that. Um, and learn more about this topic through lectures, through briefings, through site visits, through webinars, through podcasts like this. 
Uh, there's a lot of information online. There's a lot of things now where we can all connect. Yeah, I think there's two very specific things that could get done here. I know from our work with prostitution and trafficking that the literally thousands of emails that were sent to every member of the Knesset and to cabinet ministers had impact, even when they weren't answered. And if there were to be thousands of weekly mm. emails sent by people who organize the campaign here, or we could organize it and have them send them, who would say, we want you to look seriously at the possibility of granting these people refugee status, or at least resident status, I think that could have resonance. I think that the members of the Knesset think that nobody really cares about this. And I think that so far, the relative silence of the Jewish world on this indicates that they're right. But the other thing I would do to have would be to have people organize minyanim and quote, although I don't like this language usually, and adopt an asylum seeker in Israel. The amounts of money here are, that would be helpful are relatively minimal. Ten people organizing around this getting together once a month could make an enormous difference for a person's life. It could literally be life-saving. And those Minyanim could inform one another and become a movement of some consequence. Um, I, I just want to throw one other thing in here for a moment, which is that I often hear from, I'll try to be generous and gentle, from people not intimately enough familiar with the biblical tradition. When you bring to their attention that the mitzvah of the Ahavtat Agel, that you should love the stranger, they often tell you that that refers to the word ger as a convert, which was the rabbinic usage. When that word is used biblically, by the way, it's love the stranger, which is an incre incredibly strong language for the homish. It's not tolerate or show respect for, it's love. We need to be very clear here that what the Torah intended was the person absolutely different from you in the same way that it said that you should love the stranger because you were strangers in Egypt. And nobody thinks that the Jews converted to Egyptian polytheism. So it's clear here that what the Torah was demanding, that a person who took themselves seriously as a Jew would manifest love for the other exactly because of their difference, not in spite of it. And I think that that understanding might even help to shift a bit of consciousness. I'm enough of, enough of an educator myself to think that maybe that can make inroads on people's understandings. That could lead to the formation of small communities, let's call them minyanim of support. That coupled with a massive email campaign, which takes somebody about 30 seconds a week to institute, just might make resonance and might create a shift of opinion in the Knesset and then in the country at large. This conversation has, I think, gone in places I wasn't anticipating it to go, but all good places. I want to thank both of you for your time. I really look forward to continuing the conversation, even offline. I want to thank you for doing this. And I want to say that for 20 years, you personally and the Good People Fund have provided Atsum with critical support exactly at those times when it was most urgently needed. And on the darkest of days, I try to hold myself accountable to the people that gave that support rather than let those dark days overwhelm you. And that keeps you going. So Naomi, you and the Good People Fund deserve a tremendous amount of credit for sustaining our efforts. Even on those days when it seems it's not going anywhere, you provided the impetus that kept us at it. And I'm extremely grateful for that. Well, thank you for that. And honestly, to my thinking, none of this is possible without the donors who believe in us, our association with people such as the two of you are critically important. And um, 
and Lila Tov. Thank you. Thank you so much, Naomi, and for your partnership and for all the good work of the Good People Fund.